This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. We will begin on page 863 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. Luke 7, 18 to 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet... Wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, first, let me say, who day? Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, really glad that you could be here to worship with us this morning. Uh, just as we begin, I want to tell you about somebody who had a very vibrant and deep faith in Jesus Christ. In the middle of his career, he was preaching 13 sermons every week. The crowds who had come out to hear him got as large as 5,000 people during the height of his popularity. He preached to them without a microphone, by the way, which is impressive to me. His collections of sermons were bestsellers in his day. At the end of his life, they collected 
his sermons for publication, and they filled 63 volumes. Now, just for comparison's sake, the Encyclopedia Britannica, those of you who can remember back to physical encyclopedias, those were 27 volumes. This was 63 volumes. In addition to his preaching ministry, he founded and directed an orphanage that cared for children in need. He either founded or sat upon the board of 66 other organizations. He was said to write hundreds of personal letters every week, meticulous about personal correspondence. He would read four to five books a week. He wrote 140 books himself. Now, it's important to say productivity is not always a good measure of closeness to Christ, but anybody who knew him said that all the things that sort of flowed out publicly were indicative of a private life that was just like that. There was a symmetry between the the man and the ministry. They described him, those closest to him, as a, a man with a deep, warm, and vibrant faith. His name was Charles Spurgeon, and he wrote this. And the words are on the screen there. He wrote, Some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others, establishing them in the knowledge of the Bible, have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. When someone says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. John Calvin usually considered the father of Reformed theology, one of the great stalwarts of the Reformation, he wrote this. He said, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt, nor any assurance that is not assailed by anxiety. You see, the presence of doubt is not the problem. It's what you do with it. It's how you handle it. It's where you go with it. And to show us this, Luke, the Gospel writer, records for us the story of somebody with a much closer relationship to Jesus than John Calvin or Charles Spurgeon or you or me. Someone very close to Jesus expressing doubt and bringing it to Jesus in the form of a question. And so, as we look at our text this morning, I want you to be thinking of the places where you may be doubting the questions you may be asking if if that's the kind of season that you're in. Or if you're not in that season now, think about the ways that you have had questioned in the past. Where do you go with those questions? How do you bring them? And for all of us, I want us to be thinking, how do we treat others who have doubts? And so let's pray together, and then we'll get into our text this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, your word is a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so we ask that you would help me in this teaching. Would you help all of us in our listening to to learn from your word? We pray this now in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, three things we're going to look at this morning as we uh, take a look at the passage just read to us. We're going to talk about John's doubts in the form of the question that he brings. We're going to talk about Jesus' answer to that question. And then finally, we're going to hear a warning, a warning against cynicism. So John's doubts, Jesus' answer, and then a warning. All right, so let's think first about John's doubts. And then the first thing I just want you to note, right, we've heard from Spurgeon, we've heard from Calvin. Now I want you to hear from the Bible loud and clear. You can be very close to Jesus, and still have doubts. 
I hope that you know this. You can be very close to Jesus and still have doubts. I mean, consider John the Baptist. He knew Jesus for 30 years, way more than any of the other disciples around him, right? He was Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist, we're told time and again in Scripture, was filled with the Holy Spirit. He, he leapt in the womb when Elizabeth, his mother, and Mary, Jesus' mother, got together. It was like he knew the Messiah was near by the power of the Spirit. And as he grew older, it continues to say that it says he became strong in the Spirit. John was a powerful and courageous preacher. He was committed to the Word of God. John baptized Jesus. He was there to see the Holy Spirit come down upon Jesus like a dove. He heard the voice of the Father from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And if all that's not impressive, consider the things that John said about Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He must increase. I must decrease. I'm not worthy to carry His sandals. I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. And if John's statements about Jesus are not impressive to you, consider what Jesus has to say about John. Down in verse 28 of our text, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Jesus saying, of all the humans I've made, John is the best. It's a pretty big statement. Now, if he can have doubts, if John the Baptist can have questions, then that means any of us can. Let's look at the text. Verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. That is all the miracles we've been talking about over the last couple weeks. The things Jesus has been doing, like healing the centurion's servant, the raising of the widow's son from the dead. And John, it says now in verse 19, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? See, John is hearing all these reports, right? These amazing things that Jesus is doing. The crowds are swelling. They're hearing Jesus in these uh, incredible teachings like the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6. People hadn't heard teaching like this before. In fact, they, were, they come out saying, we haven't heard anybody teach with this kind of authority, this kind of power, this kind of insight into God's Word. And it's not just what he's speaking, it's the things he's doing alongside the preaching. It's the miracles, it's the healings. John's wondering, is this really the Messiah or should I be looking for somebody else? Now, why would John be left with doubts after hearing the reports of all these amazing things? Two things, I think. Pain and unmet expectations. John's doubt is driven at first by his pain. Now, there's some important context here that is not uh, clear from just the selection that we read this morning. Uh, if you continue to read through the, the, the Gospel of Luke, you would know this, or cross-referencing to the other Gospel writers, you would know that at this point, John the Baptist is in prison. So before this, John was drawn enormous crowds himself. People were coming out from the cities to hear his preaching, his message of repentance. And John was an outsider. People kind of liked that. He, he denounced corruption in the government. He denounced corruption in the religious establishment. And then John went too far. King Herod had very publicly divorced his wife in order to marry his brother's wife. And 
John the Baptist very publicly rebuked Herod for this. And so Herod takes him and throws him into prison. In the time of our story, John's life is now hanging by a thread. He's in prison. He's in danger. He's also probably left feeling irrelevant, forgotten. Right? Where are the crowds now? Well, they're flocking to Jesus. They had been with John. Even some of Jesus' core disciples were originally disciples of John the Baptist. And so here we are, and John is struggling. It's like he's saying, if you are the promised Messiah, if you are the one who is to come, and I serve you faithfully, then why is my life a wreck? Okay, I hear, Jesus, that you're doing miracles, but why aren't you doing one for me? How can I believe you in the face of the tragedy and the pain and the unfairness in my own life? And look, in a room this size, I know that John is not the only one who experienced something like this. Some of us have experienced or are experiencing that right now, right? As the fallen world begins to fill up our lives, questions often begin to fill up our minds. This fallen world hurts. It hurt John. And when we're in the middle of that hurting, we often are left questioning, where are you, God? Where are you? But it's not just pain. John's doubt is also occasioned by unmet expectations. John had some expectations of what the Messiah ought to be doing, and it doesn't seem like Jesus is matching up. If you're the Messiah, why aren't you getting anything done? And the commentator, Frederick Dale Bruner, explains it this way, commenting on this episode. He says, Jesus is out in the sticks, healing sick, insignificant little individuals here and there, but not doing much to change the basic structural problems of Israel's life. The Pharisees still control popular religious life. The Sadducees still control the temple. The whole religion ideological system seems thoroughly unthreatened by Jesus' do-goodism in the hills. What's more, John, the propagandist of the new order, is in prison, and Herod, the embodiment of the oppressive establishment, is still on the throne and is, in fact, about to have John's head, leaving John to ask, what kind of Messiah is this? John's thinking, where's the fire? Where's the judgment? Why am I still in prison? When do we get to overthrow the oppressive government and set up the kingship here in Jerusalem? In other words, Jesus, I'm not sure about your agenda. John just never expected that the kingdom would take so long. And Jesus was not living up to his expectations. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Now, how does Jesus answer this? Jesus roots his answer in his deeds, in his works, that is, the things that he's doing in the world, and also in his word, in the scriptures. You might also say that Jesus aims his answer at John's head. Consider this John. Think about this John. But he also aims a pastoral warning at John's heart. Don't stumble over me, John. Verse 20. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? It's almost like you can picture them sort of saying, Jesus, we're good, we're seeing this. Uh, John, though, he's, he's, you got to remember, he hasn't seen these things. He's far away. He's in prison. We see what you're doing. John just has a few questions. Verse 21. In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed 
sight. So Jesus continues to do these wonderful deeds, his works in their presence. He makes sure that John's disciples see what it is he's doing. He's healing the disease. He cast out evil spirits. He restores sight to the blind. Verse 22, and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard, that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus here is landing his deeds, right, in God's word. He's particularly quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He says to the disciples, go and tell John what I'm doing. John knows. He knows God's word. He'll recognize this. Jesus points to Isaiah's prophecies of the coming Messiah. For example, from Isaiah 35, where it says, then when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute Sing for joy, or Isaiah 29. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Or maybe most famously, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Jesus' response to John is something like this. John, look at my life. And then John, look at my word. And when you do, you'll know the answer to your question. The messianic time is broken into our time. As you can see from the things that I'm doing, John, I am the one who is to come. While Jesus' ministry may not have met John or other revolutionaries' expectations, he was doing exactly what the Old Testament prophets said he would do. The blind were receiving sight. The deaf could hear. The lame could walk. Lepers were cleansed. The poor heard the good news. But then Jesus gives John a warning. Verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Some translations say, blessed is the one who is not tripped up by me. He's saying, John, don't you stumble over me. It's interesting, you know, in the litany of messianic signs, that Isaiah describes and Jesus quotes here, right? The blind will receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers cleanse, the deaf hear, the dead raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. When you read through those messianic signs, especially in Isaiah 61, do you know what the very next thing it says the Messiah will do? Isaiah 61 goes on to say, the Messiah will proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, I want you to imagine John for a second getting this word back. Remember, he sent his disciples to go and ask this question to Jesus. The disciples then come back and they tell John what Jesus has said, quoting from Isaiah. Now, John's a prophet. John knows the Old Testament. He knows this quote as they're rattling it off to him, right? The blind will receive sight. Great, he's thinking, but I'm not blind. The lame walk, great, but I'm not lame. The lepers will be cleansed, great, but I don't have leprosy. The deaf here, great, but I'm not deaf. The dead are raised, awesome, but I'm not dead yet. Anyway, right? The poor will have good news preached to them. Hallelujah, that's a great thing. Now, John's waiting, right? The next line, he's waiting. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. That's the one that matters. But Jesus stops short. He doesn't say it. He cuts off the quote. 
John's waiting for it. Where's my miracle? And Jesus says, John, you're not wrong. I'm the one. And I am doing the things that I promised. But John, I'm not going to do everything that I promised now. Because my timing is not your timing. And so, John, don't stumble over me. Don't stumble over me. A pastoral, gentle warning. But don't hear this as a chastisement. Because there's an encouragement here too. Because what's the next thing that Jesus does? He begins to tell everybody else how great John is. Now listen, John's role is pretty important, right? He's a prophet. Jesus says he's even more than a prophet. Uh, He's the forerunner of the Messiah. That's the quotation from Malachi 3 there, down in verse 27. And, And we know that John has seen a lot. John knows a lot. God has given John a lot. So this is actually a pretty big doubt for a prophet to have. I mean, if your whole job description is to be the forerunner for the Messiah, to have doubts about the identity of the Messiah is a pretty big doubt. But Jesus doesn't cast him away. Rather, he praises him. Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, the best human I ever made. And I want everybody to hear that. It's a pretty big encouragement, isn't it? Especially to somebody who's struggling with doubt and anxiety and insecurity. But let's keep going, though, because Jesus now turns his attention to address the crowds. And the final few verses are some of the strongest things that Jesus says anywhere in the Gospels. You might call it a rebuke to cynicism. Starting in verse 31, he says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? Well, they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you. And you did not weep. He compares the people of that generation to whining children. Sometimes this is called the the parable of the childish brats. (laughs) Because he's quoting a nursery rhyme. And it's a nursery rhyme about whining. We wanted you to dance and you didn't dance. We wanted you to weep, but you didn't weep. You're not doing what we want you to do. And therefore we won't believe. You see, it's one thing to have questions. It's one thing to struggle with doubts. It's another thing to demand that you won't follow God unless he does what you want him to do. Do we really expect that if God comes near, that he'll dance to our music? That's the pushback Jesus is giving here. And then he goes on in verse 33. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, damned if you do, damned if you don't. These are not honest doubts. These are not lingering questions. Rather, these are people preloaded with a decision to reject him, right? There's a dismissiveness. There's a rejection in search of a justification. It's not an honest seeking, but doubt as an end in itself. Cynicism as sophistication. Dallas Willard put it this way. He said, we live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. 
Listen, Jesus is not rebuking honest questions. He's rejecting cynicism as sophistication or doubt for doubt's sake. Or another term the Bible uses is hard-heartedness. C.S. Lewis addresses this in a lot of places in the abolition of man, his book. But listen to what he says in one place in particular. We have the words, I think, for you. He says, you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window should be transparent because the street or the garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It's no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. In other words, doubt cannot be an end in itself. Right? The goal is to move through doubt, to move through questions, to find something eventually to latch onto, to find something to root yourself in, to find something firm to stand upon. You see, the presence of doubt is not the problem. In fact, Luke tells us the story to remind us that everyone is going to have some measure of doubt. If John the Baptist had doubts, I can promise you, you will. If not now, at some point. The question, though, is what will you do with them? And I want to close just with a a couple of quick applications, a couple of suggestions. When we do have doubts, what do we do with them? And the first thing I I would suggest to you is to ask those questions. I mean, that's what John does in our story, right? He asks the questions that he has. Some of our doubts are not arguments so much as they are deep questions, deep questions wonderings and so my encouragement to you is to ask them even to turn those doubts into prayers God's not afraid of those kind of questions in fact he welcomes them the story of the Bible is the story of God welcoming people of weak faith God welcoming people of incomplete faith in Mark chapter 9 there's a story of a father who desperately wants to believe that Jesus can help his son and so he prays I believe Lord help my unbelief Man, that's a great prayer for all of us doubters. I believe. Help my unbelief. Don't run away from God when you have doubts, but run toward him. My second encouragement to you is to continue to seek Jesus, and particularly to seek him in his word. Read the Bible. Keep going to the word. Frederick Bruner, I quoted him earlier, but he says, practically speaking, the dynamite of faith for our congregation and families is simply, to more, is simply more faithful exposure to the words and works of Jesus. The dynamite of faith is simply more faithful exposure to the words and works of Jesus. And if you don't know where to start in reading the scriptures, let me invite you to join us in our readings and prayers they're printed at the, uh, the back of the bulletin every week. They give you a little plan for reading. You can even, there's instructions in there how you can get those texted to you every morning. There's instructions in the bulletin for that. But one of those readings each day is from the four Gospels. It's a chance to hear what Jesus says, to see what Jesus does. When Jesus responds to John, he says, look at me, John. Look at what I'm teaching. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what God's word says about me. I want to encourage you to look at Jesus as you process your doubts and ask your questions. 
And thirdly, I want to encourage you to talk with others. Right, get in a community group or a men's group or a women's group. They're all starting up again in February here at New City. Right, these kinds of avenues, these kinds of environments not only give you a chance to process your questions with others, but you get to hear other people doing that same kind of process. And you get to hear how other people are engaging with God's word or how other people have been impacted by Christ in their life. It can be incredibly helpful not to bear those questions and burdens all by yourself. And then the last thing I'll say for all of us is to be merciful to those who doubt. It's just a quote from the end of the New Testament, Jude verse 22 Small little epistle tucked at the very back of the New Testament. But Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. And I can tell you personally, this has been really important in my own faith. I'm a person who at times has had a lot of questions. I've had doubts. I've had struggles. And fortunately, I came into Christianity in an environment where those things were not shut down. I was allowed to struggle. I was allowed to ask. I was allowed to wonder. And if it wasn't for that kind of climate, I'm not sure I would, where I would be spiritually. I hope this would be that kind of place too. Where people could ask those questions, come with our doubts. You know, uh, just a month ago, December 21st, was the Feast of St. Thomas. For those of you who are high church kind of traditions or backgrounds, uh, the Feast of St. Thomas, uh, of course, is the character in the Bible one of the disciples is where we get the phrase doubting Thomas. He was the one who had the most trouble believing in the resurrection of Jesus. And the Feast of St. Thomas, not a magic day or anything, but it's a time in the life of the church where the church historically reads those stories and reminds itself of the stories of Thomas, the stories of those who struggle to believe. And one of the things the church is encouraged to do on that day is to pray for the doubters that you know. What a wonderful practice. Pray for the doubters that you know, which should be a reminder to us all that in the Bible, doubt is not encouraged, but doubters are welcomed. And that's true this morning in our presence as well. So let's pray, and then we'll continue to worship and celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. Father, we... Um, we know that there are some in the room this morning uh, asking questions, and I, I pray that they would find a climate among us that allows for that kind of thing, and we pray that you would meet us in any and all of our questions when we have them. At the same time, Lord, if there is a cynicism, we see in ourselves a dismissiveness, a prejudice, would you help us to move beyond those things, not to camp out there, but to want to move beyond, to find something solid upon which to stand? Ultimately, we want to know the truth, and as Jesus has said, the truth is what sets us free. And for all of us struggling to believe, would you help our unbelief? Come to us in our fear, draw near to us in our anxieties and our insecurities. Would you speak to our hearts as we consider your word and as we come to your table? We pray these things, trusting in your grace. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, 
and God bless you.